You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to read verses 19 through 21 together. John, chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time before we begin. Our Father, as your people, we thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together and to worship. We gather around your word because it is in the pages of this book that we believe you have spoken. You have revealed yourself. And so we pray that through and above and beyond the voice of a mere man that we might hear your word, that we might come into a deeper understanding of who you are, and what you have done for us. Thank you for the truth of your word, and we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher as we bring ourselves under your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And we are in John chapter 3, finishing up this discussion that Jesus had with a self-righteous Pharisee named Nicodemus. And as I was rereading over this in preparation to finish this discussion, get all the way to the end of verse 21, I was struck again this last week of how offensive Everything in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, would have been to the ears of Nicodemus. Nearly everything that Jesus said attacked some aspect of Nicodemus's character, his affection, his nature, his self-righteousness, his view of himself. Almost every phrase that came out of Jesus' mouth to Nicodemus would have been utterly offensive to this self-righteous Pharisee. In our day, we are taught by everybody from Oprah to Deepak Chopra all the way to the Hallmark Channel that there is inside of each one of us this inherent good. We hear constantly about the inherent goodness of man. And if we could just manage to nurture our goodness, and if we could just find a way to sort of improve upon our goodness, we could find a way to solve nearly every ill and everything that is wrong with our world today. Now, I believe you have to be a fool to believe that. Either willfully a fool, or you are completely and totally ignorant of the nature of man. Just this morning, one of my children asked me, Dad, why is it after the flood that with only Noah and his wife and their sons and their wives that the whole earth got corrupted again? And I said it goes back to what we're looking at in John chapter 3. What is the answer to that? Because men loved what? Darkness rather than light. Noah was not sinless. His sons were not sinless. And so they are sinners who had sinners for children, who had sinners for children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren until the earth was corrupted again because the flood did not change anything with the human heart. The human heart is still wicked and by nature depraved and loves darkness rather than the light. Now, that would have been offensive to Nicodemus because Nicodemus was a self-righteous Pharisee and he would have probably fit in well on Oprah because he would have enjoyed being told how inherently good he was and that is exactly how Nicodemus felt about himself. And yet Jesus 
told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you do not believe because you love darkness rather than light. And you must be born again. And Nicodemus would have had a hard time swallowing that. Need a new heart? Are you kidding me? Maybe the next guy. Maybe my neighbor. Maybe the guy across the street. My boss, most certainly. My co-workers, most definitely. But me? Need a new heart? Born depraved? Come on. Not me. Born in darkness? Not me. Born loving darkness and living in darkness? A slave of Satan? Not me. Maybe somebody else. Maybe the next guy. But not me. And Jesus cuts his feet right out from underneath him and says, Nicodemus, you do not believe and you do not believe because you love darkness rather than light. And we've been asking ourselves, what is it that's behind unbelief? When the world mocks, when the world rejects, when the world turns its back upon truth and rejects truth and refuses to believe truth, what is it that accounts for that unbelief? From our perspective, it seems insane that somebody would refuse to believe and receive forgiveness of sins and trust their lives to Christ. But what is it that accounts for such unbelief? And it dawned on me this last week that when I talk about unbelief, I may not have been clear as to exactly what I mean by unbelief. So let me sort of offer a clarification. I know this is a little bit late in the day, or late in the game, so to speak, because we're almost to the end of this passage. But unbelief is different than ignorance. Do you all understand that? Unbelief is different than ignorance. Somebody can be ignorant of something and thus not believe it because they've never received the light of truth. They've never understood it. They've never been taught that. Unbelief is different than ignorance. What Jesus is addressing with Nicodemus is not ignorance, it's unbelief. Unbelief is knowing the truth. Unbelief is seeing the truth, being exposed to the truth, and turning and knowingly, willingly rejecting the truth. That's unbelief. That's different than ignorance. Man is not ignorant concerning the reality and the existence of God. Romans chapter 1. He knows the truth, but he suppresses it in his unrighteousness. That's not ignorance, that is unbelief. The religious leaders of Jesus' day stood there and saw the miracles, heard his messianic claims, saw the evidence of his messianic claims, and they willingly, knowingly turned and did not believe, refused to believe. They weren't ignorant. They heard the truth. They saw the truth. They knew the truth. They perceived the truth. And yet they turned from the truth willfully in unbelief. Unbelief and ignorance are different. And what is being condemned in John chapter 3 is Nicodemus' ignorance. He was not, sorry, unbelief. He was not ignorant concerning the truth. He sat there in the presence of the Holy One, the Son of God. He had heard of and seen Jesus' miracles. He had heard of the cleansing of the temple, which was his messianic credentials on display. Nicodemus had heard Jesus' teaching. He knew what Jesus was claiming. And he sat there in this conversation with Jesus about the need to be born again and willingly said, how can these things be? A statement of utter unbelief. And thus Jesus pinpoints his unbelief, not his ignorance, and says, Nicodemus, your unbelief is due to one thing and one thing only. You love darkness rather than light. That is always what is behind unbelief. So we're not talking about ignorance. We're talking about unbelief. Now what is it that accounts for such unbelief? Is it because God has not given enough light or evidence of his existence? Is that the reason for unbelief? Is it because God is not powerful enough or willing to change the hearts of people and convince them of His truth? Is it because, did Nicodemus not believe, was that because Jesus was not a very good evangelist? He really did not know how to to find Nicodemus' felt need and get Nicodemus to make a decision. 
Is it just because Jesus was such a, a poor evangelist that Nicodemus did not believe? No, what is it that is at the root of Nicodemus's unbelief? It is his love for darkness and nothing else. It was his unwillingness to come to the light and his lack of coming to the light that was to blame for his unbelief. So we've been looking at the truth that men love darkness rather than light, and this ought to do to us two things. It ought to humble us. It ought to humble us. To recognize that behind our unbelief, if you're sitting here this morning and you're still in a condition of unbelief, it ought to humble you to have Jesus of Nazareth say that the reason for your unbelief was because you love darkness rather than light. That is a horrible thing to hear. That you love moral darkness, ethical darkness, spiritual darkness, intellectual darkness. You love all of that darkness more than you do the light and the truth. That is a very humbling statement. It ought to further humble us because we recognize that we have been set free from this darkness. This is the condition in which we once were. And we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to light. We who once were darkness are now light in the Lord. By His doing, we are in Christ Jesus. We have been caused to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And darkness is the condition in which we once were. So who can boast? Who among us can boast and say, I have myself to thank for my salvation and for escaping the darkness and coming into the light? Anybody want to make that claim? No true believer would make that claim. It ought to humble us. But second, it ought to do something else. It ought to create in us a sense of compassion. When you're sharing Christ with somebody who is an unbeliever, and they reject that, and they mock you, and they turn away from that, and they refuse to believe, it ought to create in our hearts a sense of compassion. Because as Titus chapter 3 says, we ourselves also were once what? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That was the description of us. We were once darkness. We were once in the kingdom of darkness. And it ought not to ever escape our memory exactly what it is we have been delivered from. We never should forget the hole from which we were dug. And remember that we ourselves were also once in that condition of darkness. But God, by His grace, has set us free and delivered us into light. So verse 19, we covered that last week. Men love darkness rather than light. That was the general principle. Verse 20 applies that in the and illustrates it with the response of an unbeliever to the light. Look at verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Then verse 20 takes the general principle of verse 9 and illustrates it in the response of a believer. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So having looked at verse 19, now we're going to look at verse 20 and verse 21 and see this truth. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. See it illustrated in the response of an unbeliever, verse 20, and then in a believer, verse 21. I want you to notice, in keeping with everything else we've seen in John chapter 3, there is a set of contrasts between verse 20 and verse 21. There are different responses to the light. In verse 20, there are those who do not come to the light. In verse 21, there are some who come to the light. There are also different practices. In verse 20, we see those who practice evil. In verse 21, those who practice the truth. There's also a different affection for the light. In verse 20, we see are exposed to a group that hates the light. And then in verse 21, by implication and by contrast, this group that comes to the light loves the light. You see the opposites, the polar opposites? It's almost as if Jesus is speaking here in terms that leave us without a doubt that there, are no middle, there is no middle ground. There's no middle ground between darkness and light. Hatred for the truth and love for the truth. Love for the light and hatred for the light. Coming to the light and not coming to the light. 
There is no, there is no ground in between where you sit on the fence. People who say, well, I'm trying to make a decision. Well, actually, you are making a decision. It is for darkness rather than light. There is no middle ground. It's just two opposing opposites. Now, verse 19, or verse 20, I should say, begins with the same description of the same group of people that is described in verse 19. For everyone who does evil hates the light. That is the same group of people that's mentioned in verse 19 when Jesus said that men love the darkness rather than the light. These are the ones who, in verse 20, do the evil or practice evil. And Jesus says, everyone who does evil hates the light. Now, who does the everyone apply to? Who does it describe? This is really simple. Everyone describes whom? Everyone, right? Who does evil? Is there any who does righteousness from the womb? Is there any child that you have to uh, instruct in the ways of evil because they're so inherently good? Or do you have to constantly bend them back to the good? Everyone who does evil. Who does evil? Everyone does evil. Everyone does evil from the moment that they're capable of doing evil. We do evil in our thoughts. We do evil in our motives. We do evil in our deeds. We do evil in our intentions. We do evil to one another. Children do evil to one another. We do evil, and everyone who does evil hates the truth, hates the light. So who is the everyone? It is all men. This is a comprehensive description of all men, listen, in their natural condition. I'm describing men apart from the grace of God, apart from the influence of the Word of God, apart from the influence of the Spirit of God, and apart from regeneration, Natural man, left in his natural state, apart from any divine intervention of grace, always does evil because there's none righteous. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all sin is evil, to one degree or another. All sin. And so everyone who sins, and that describes everyone who's ever been born, save only Jesus Christ, everyone who sins does evil and hates the light. Everyone who does evil, verse 19, or verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light. That's a strong word, hates, isn't it? Hates the light. Now, how does he feel about darkness, the natural man? Loves darkness. Remember the word agape? This unconditional, unidirectional love that loves in spite of what it gets in return. Natural, fallen, unregenerate man. Agapes, loves darkness. Even though he gets nothing back from darkness, all he ever gets is ruin and destruction and depravity and wretchedness, and the loss of everything that should be precious to him. That's all that darkness ever returns to him without ever receiving anything back from darkness that is for his good. He sets his affection on darkness. And the opposite of that is that he hates the light. Hates is a very passionate word. John uses it 12 times in his Gospel, which is significant since that's one-third of all the times that that word is used in all of the New Testament. John uses it a third of the occurrences of the word hate. But in John's Gospel, he uses the term hate in a very unique and significant way. When John speaks, when John uses the term hate in his Gospel, he uses it to describe the world and the unbeliever's response to Jesus and to God the Father. I want you to see this. Turn to John chapter 7. I want you to see a couple of passages where Jesus speaks of hatred. John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Notice against again the reference to hate, and who are they hating? They're hating Jesus. Why? Because he testifies that the deeds are evil. Sounds a lot like verse 19 and 20, doesn't it? They hate the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil, and they don't want to come to the light so that their deeds would be exposed. So when the light showed up and said, your deeds are evil, and here's how they're evil, here's God's standard, and here's how your deeds measure up, they hated the light. Jesus said, they hate me because I testify of them that their deeds are evil. Turn over to John chapter 15. 
John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. What is the response of the world to the light bearers? You and I, who believe on Christ and bear the light. The brighter we shine the light, the more the world will hate us, because it hated Him first. Verse 20, remember that the the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not come among them and the works and done the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word which is written in their law. They hated me without a a cause. See, there the world responds not just to Jesus, but also to the Father with hatred, Jesus says, because I come and I expose their deeds. And I do the works that I do among them, and it shows them the light, and they respond with this visceral hatred. Now, if somebody, jump back to John chapter 3, if somebody loves darkness, what is going to be their natural response to the light? They're going to hate the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And they will respond with hatred to the light because the light seeks to divest them of the thing that they are most fond of. They view the light, an unbeliever views the light of truth as something which is intent upon robbing or taking from him the thing that he loves more than anything else in all of the world, and that is darkness. Because the light comes, and the light seeks to sever the unbeliever from his sin, And the unbeliever loves his sin and darkness so much that he will not come to the light and responds to the light with hatred because he sees the light as an enemy to his soul and a threat to his good, a threat to the very thing that he cherishes more than anything else. And that is his sin, and that is his darkness. And so they respond with hatred. He loves darkness, and he hates, hates the light. Can you hear the passion in that statement? Hates. Is an unbeliever indifferent to the light? Is an unbeliever in a state of darkness where he's kind of saying to himself, you know, I really wish somebody would turn on the light and show me the way. Is that the natural state of an unbeliever? Is he kind of indifferent to the light? Okay, well, you guys have the light, and I got my darkness, and it's, you know, you got your truth, and I got my truth, and I like mine, and you have yours, and so I just dispassionate, disquieted about it. Is that how a, Is that how an unbeliever views the light? He what? He hates the light. No matter how kind he may speak of the light in your presence, no matter how gracious he may be to your face, in his heart of hearts, he hates, hates the light. Take all these new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Bart Ehrman, and all of the drivel that they're pumping out, all these old, tired, atheistic arguments that have been rehashed and answered a thousand times, and they publish the books, and they become New York Times bestsellers. And in the back of their minds and on the radio interviews, they're simply doing this because they're interested in the truth, and they personally have never been given any really good reason to believe in the light. They've never really been given any good reason to respond to Christ or believe that Jesus existed. And so to them, they say, it's just an intellectual enterprise. Is that true? No, in their heart of hearts, what is their attitude? They hate Christ with such a passion that you cannot possibly even imagine it. 
They're not indifferent to him. They're not dispassionate about him. This is no tepid affair. They hate Christ and they hate God with such a passion, such an intensity that you and I cannot even imagine it. It is not indifference whatsoever. To love the darkness is to hate the light. There is no such individual who exists in a middle ground who is dispassionate or tepid about both of those. Who simply intellectually analyzes both of them. There's no middle ground. They love darkness and they absolutely detest with a visceral hatred all the light and everything that the light stands for. This is not a tepid affair. They hate it. And they hate Him passionately. This is almost depressing, isn't it? Everyone who does evil hates the light. And this next, next statement is really, really disconcerting. And does not come to the light. He does not come to the light. Unbelievers sometimes come to the light? No. Can unbelievers be lured away from darkness to light? Oh, we could lure them in. We put up a, a nice sign, promise an audio-video presentation, maybe offer snow cones and salvation at the same time. We lure in the unbeliever, give them popcorn on Sunday mornings, give them a video presentation, do something to sort of massage their flesh, and we will be able to lure them away from darkness toward the light. Now, does the unbeliever come to the light? The unbeliever hates the light. The unbeliever doesn't come to the light any more than I come to a liver dinner. Remember the liver steak illustration I gave you last week? The, the unbeliever is not going to come and eat a liver dinner. He doesn't like liver. He hates liver. So Sorry, that's me. The unbeliever hates the light and loves his darkness. So he's not going to come to the light. You can't lure him away from the darkness. You can't lure him towards the light. You can't ask him or convince him to trade darkness for light because Jesus said, the one who loves darkness does not come to the light. Just this last week, I went down to, and some of you who are here Friday night know this, I went down to California to um, visit a relative that is going to be passing away soon. And I went down there with one purpose, and that was to share the gospel with him before he died. I explained the gospel on two different occasions, talked to him about death and the reality of death and what he could expect unless he repented and turned from his sin and trusted Christ for salvation. I don't know that he did. I don't know that he didn't. And I don't know what the future will bring. But I do know this, that men in their unregenerate state love darkness and they will not come to the light. And that may describe the person that I shared the gospel with or the people that I shared the gospel with. That may describe the person who is across the street from you or next door to you. It may describe your spouse. It may describe your children or your grandchildren. It may describe your grandparents or, your, or even your mom and dad. That they do not love the light. They love darkness. And they do not come to the light. That's depressing. If it were not for verse 21. But there are some who come to the light, aren't there? Look at verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. So there are some who come to the light. And what Jesus says in verse 21 doesn't overturn what he said in verse 20. It's not a contradiction. There are obviously some who come to the light. Now, the unbeliever left in his natural unregenerate state does not come to the light because he hates the light and he loves his darkness. But verse 21 says that there are some who come to the light. It's not a contradiction because in verse 20, Jesus is describing what is at the heart of those who refuse to believe. In verse 21, he is describing the heart and the affection of those who do believe. Verse 20 describes the unbeliever, the unregenerate man, and his affections and his love and the reason why he remains in his unbelief and thus perishes. Verse 21 describes the affections of a believer. So there are obviously some 
millions, and I believe countless millions, who do come to the light and have come to the light since the moment of creation all the way until this present day. And there are many, thousands I hope, even tens of thousands or millions, who are coming to the light all the time, each and every week. So what accounts for some coming to the light and some not coming to the light? Well, verse 21 describes the believer and how the believer responds to the light. Read it again. He who practices the truth. Now, that's kind of an odd, very awkward statement in the original language and in the English. We think of people speaking the truth. We think of people loving the truth. Those are are very natural ways to speak of the truth. But in the original language, in the Greek, doing the truth, and to literally translate it would be those who do truth. That's kind of an awkward statement, isn't it? Those who do truth. And yet it seems intentionally awkward as if John and Jesus are trying to contrast these two groups of people. There are those whose practices do evil. In their practice they do evil. There are those who do truth. They are truth doers. It's a very awkward way of stating it. But yet actions can be truthful as well as words, right? Somebody who does truth would be somebody whose deeds, whose works, comport with divine truth or in keeping with God's word, with God's will, with God's way, with God's truth. They are those deeds, the end of verse 21 says, that have been wrought in God. The believer, he who comes to the light, loves the light and comes to the light, not because he fears that his deeds will be exposed, but in order that his deeds may be exposed. This is the difference in the reaction between uh, to the light between those of unbelievers and believers. Unbelievers want to hide in the darkness because they don't want everybody to see their deeds, their works. So they cover their deeds in darkness. The unbeliever comes to the light in order that, with the purpose that, his deeds will be exposed. He wants everything to be seen. The believer says, I want the hidden corners of my life exposed to the light. I want everything known. Lay it all on the table so everybody can see it. And all my wickedness can be exposed, uncovered, purified in the light of truth. He loves the light. He loves the truth. He does not like darkness. He wants everything out on the table. Not necessarily so that all of his baggage and his sins can be seen by everybody else, but so that he himself might be purified by the light and that every good deed that he has done may be seen for what it is as that which God has done in him and it may be to the praise and the glory of God. And so the believer does what with the light? He comes to the light. Now there is a question that is not directly answered in these two verses which comes to our mind. And the question is this. If natural man does not come to the light, but there are some who come to the light, what accounts for the difference? Right? If natural man does not come to the light, and yet there are some who have obviously come to the light. What made them from this camp not coming to the light and transferred them to this camp, those who come to the light? To put it another way, to what do I credit my sudden change of affections from loving darkness to loving light? Listen, friends, my affections have been changed. They have been radically changed. There was a day in my life when I loved darkness so passionately with such affection and I hated light with such a visceral hatred that I cannot even describe them to you. Then there was a day when those affections were changed and I'm here to tell you, I did not change them. 
I did not change them. I did not reform myself. I did not work on it. I did not put forth any effort to do it at all. It was like night and day, on and off, my affections changed from loving darkness to loving light. How did that happen? What is to credit for that? Was I less in dark than the guy next to me? Was I less a slave to sin than the other guy? If that is the case, then how do I account for the guy who was more enslaved to sin than I was, who still got saved? What do To what do I credit, or to what do I give glory for this change from darkness to light? Do I have myself to thank for these things, or do I have only and solely the free grace of God? You know where I stand. It is only and solely the free grace of God. That my affections have been changed. Because I did not change them. And you cannot change your affections. And you cannot convince a lost person to change his affections and start loving light. So you put all of John chapter 3 together and suddenly it makes sense. What is it that happened to Jim Osmond that changed him from a darkness lover to a light lover? It's regeneration. I have been born again. That's it. That's the end of it. That is why people who live in darkness need to be born again because they love darkness and they don't love light and they need to love the light so that they come to the light and show that their deeds have been manifested in God. This change of nature is necessary because we are slaves of sin. This change of nature is necessary and it can only happen through regeneration. That is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Then you get to the end of the passage and you realize he needs to be born again because he was a darkness lover and he needed the new birth to make him a light lover. People don't love light unless they have been given new nature, new affections, new life, a new birth. It is regeneration. Unbelievers do not come to the light because they hate the light. Believers come to the light because their natures have been changed. They've been regenerated. And thus they come to the light because suddenly they love the light. And they love the light and they come to the light so that their deeds may be exposed. As having been manifested, or manifested as having been wrought in God. This shows us really what is the nature at the, at the root of all unbelief. Not ignorance, unbelief. A willful turning of, from, and a rejection of the truth. What is at the heart of it? At the heart of it is a love for darkness. In his commentary, his expository thoughts on the Gospel of John, J.C. Ryle writes this, It was not that there was any want in the love of God. It was not that there was any want of evidence of His Messiahship. The real reason was that they had no mind to give up their sins. It is not because there is any want of light to guide men to heaven. It's not because God is wanting in love and unwilling to save. The real reason is that men in every age love their own sins and will not come to Christ that they may be delivered from them. Stop. Listen to that. Men do not want to be delivered from their sins. They don't want that. Men would rather part with a child than part with a lust, Thomas Watson used to say. J.C. Rowell goes on, There's not a word about any decree of God predestinating men to destruction. We don't believe that, that men are predestinated to destruction. There is not a syllable about anything deficient or wanting, either in God's love or in Christ's atonement. But the real account of the matter is that men have naturally no will or inclination to use the light. They love their own dark and corrupt ways more than the ways which God proposes to them. They therefore reap the fruit of their own ways and will have at last what they loved. They loved darkness and they will be cast into outer darkness. In short, lost souls will be what they willed to be and will have all that they loved. End quote. 
And George Swinnick, another Puritan, said this, There are several things which may help to make the life fairer in the eyes of men, but nothing will make it amiable in the eyes of God unless the heart is changed and renewed. Indeed, all the medicines that can be applied without the sanctifying work of the Spirit, though they may cover, they can never cure the corruptions and diseases of the soul. Such civil persons go to hell without much disturbance, being asleep in sin, yet not snoring to the disquieting of others. They are so far from being awakened that they at many times be praised and commended. Example and custom and education may also help a man to make a fair show in the flesh, but not to walk after the Spirit. They may prune and lop sin, but never stub it up by the roots. All that these can do is to make a man like a grave, green and flourishing on the surface and outside, but within there is nothing but noisomeness and corruption. What is it, the root cause of unbelief? Willful rejection of the truth? It is nothing else than a love for darkness. Well, what do you say about those who don't seem to hate the truth? And hate the light, but they don't seem to love darkness. I have neighbors, I have friends, I have relatives who are very kind and gentle and gracious and generous and good, virtuous, even moral, humanly speaking, but not in God's eyes, not in God's sight. In God's eyes and in God's sight, they are none of those things. They're much like Nicodemus, outwardly righteous, outwardly good, outwardly moral, virtuous, noble, a teacher of Israel, a leader of the people, the most religious and moral and ethical and outwardly righteous individual you could possibly imagine. A Saul of Tarsus of sorts. Outwardly blameless like a Pharisee. When it came to the things of the law, he was blameless. But what does God say about the heart of the matter? Well, Jesus didn't need anybody to testify to him about men because he knew what was in men. Right? What is Jesus' diagnosis? Though these things may be hidden from our eyes, they are not hidden from the eyes of God. And on that great day, on the judgment day, it will be revealed that every act of man, however noble and virtuous and righteous in our eyes, was nothing but an act of self-righteous, prideful, wicked, arrogant love for darkness. It may be hidden from our eyes, but it is not from God. The very last thing that this passage teaches us is how true believers respond to sin. How does a true believer deal with sin? Does he cover it up in the darkness? You know how a true believer deals with sin in his own heart, in his own life? He drags it right out into the light of truth so that it might be exposed and dealt with as soon, as quick, and as efficiently as possible. Unbelievers, when they are exposed to the light, recede into the darkness. They cover up their sin in darkness. A believer confesses his sin in the light before God so that it might be dealt with. He comes to the light because he doesn't want things unexposed. A believer knows that being in the light is the best thing for him. Always. Always the best thing for him. An unbeliever thinks that being in the darkness is the best thing for him. And that is the very thing that ends in his ruin. So how does a Christian deal with sin? We cover it up. Confess it in the light. We deal with it in the light. Confess it before God. Confess it to one another when we sin against one another. We lay it out on the table. We shine the light of truth on it. And we deal with it as it is in truth according to God's Word. That's what we're going to do today with our communion service. We have communion before us, the Lord's Supper. We're going to take a moment to confess our own sin and as believers to deal with our own sin before we observe the Lord's Supper this morning. We're very grateful that God has provided a cure for the sin-sick soul. And that cure is nothing other than Jesus Christ who died on a cross to pay the penalty for the sin, to pay the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin. And God in Christ has transferred us who believe from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He has not only forgiven our sins, having imputed those sins to Christ, He has 
also imputed the righteousness of Christ to all those who believe. So that before God, on the basis of faith, on the basis of believing and receiving and trusting Christ, I am not only forgiven, this is the amazing thing, I am seen as righteous in the sight of God. Perfectly righteous because I am clothed with and given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible describes as justification. You're justified. You are declared righteous, not because you are righteous, but because somebody who was righteous has provided you with that righteousness. And that righteousness comes to us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, Titus chapter 3 says, but on the basis of faith. We have a righteousness that is not our own, not based on the law, but on the basis of faith. And so as believers, we confess our sin, we acknowledge it before God, and then we remember the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of what God did for us in sending His Son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that by Your grace You have made atonement for our sin. We know that as much as we love the light, that there are times when we stumble into darkness. We do the things which are characteristic of our nature, our sinful flesh, this unredeemed flesh and humanity in which we live. We hate those things. We do not long for them. We don't dive into sin. We don't wallow in sin. But Lord, we do recognize that we are imperfect and striving for living up to and being progressively sanctified to the end that we might be like Christ. We thank You that You have provided forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, and future, that You have laid them on the cross, that You have laid them on Your Son. We thank You for this ordinance that reminds us of all that Christ did for us on that cross. We confess to You our sin and acknowledge our inadequacy, our limitations, and our failures before You. We thank You for the glorious freedom in Christ and the glorious righteousness that is ours that He has provided. We humble ourselves and bow ourselves before You, O God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.